an idea. We have a way we've picked our way through the Scriptures. We may have had that idea for a long time and have become very, very cozy with it and hugged up to it, and it has become the way we think. And I have noticed over the years with many Scriptures, it's easy to read over them thinking, well, I already understand that one. And it's easy to miss a great deal of meaning. And we have to have our mind open, and we need to be praying regularly that God will lead and guide us to understand, because Scripture is so deep and written so powerfully that one time you might read a verse and you have two explanations for that or two categories in which you feel that it fits, but you may have been missing something entirely. And it seems that we go back to some scriptures over and over and over again, and very often it's from a totally different viewpoint or coming from a different direction. Maybe a totally different subject, but the principle that is in that scripture is important in so many different ways. And we can glean information about this subject from it, from that one, from another one, and from another one, because God is capable of putting so much meaning in his words, and weaving his word together in such an incredible way that we can go here and there through the Bible, tying things together, as long as we don't take them out of context, and use principles to things that we might not have even thought would apply. It's like Paul using the principle of not muzzling the ox that treads out the corn is an analogy about paying the ministry. Now, who would have ever thunk it? But Paul lifted that principle out of an Old Testament scripture that had nothing to do with money, really. It had to do with kindness to animals and being sure that you took care of your animal properly. It worked for you, and you should take care of it. And he used that as an example in the New Testament. Paul often did that. It was not a matter just of jerking it out of context. It was a matter of seeing what the principle was there and applying it to many different applications. Now, I gave a sermon about Passover Day being the first day of unleavened bread, during those days of unleavened bread, and it set off, I guess, a firestorm of debate, it set off a lot of study and a lot of prayer. Uh, it caused some people to open their minds and see some things that they had never seen before, including me. And it caused some to clamp their jaws shut and say, this is the way I've always believed it. This will not change, no matter what Scripture might say. And there were some sort of in between those two extremes. Now, I said at the time, this is not a firm decision. Uh, it's something that needs to be studied over a period of time and looked at uh, far more carefully, but I did promise that I would go through it again uh, well before the Days of Unleavened Bread next year and the Passover, so that we would have plenty of time to consider all the information. Now, when I gave that sermon, I was pretty well convinced it was correct. 
I am far more convinced today. I have read all that Fred Coulter wrote about it in his book, The Christian Passover. Some people thought I didn't take that into account. I read it even back then. I have read everything Frank Melty wrote about it, which he assumed and made the same mistake that I at first did. There is a scripture that says we should not answer a matter before we hear the whole story. Now, when I first heard this brought up, my initial reaction was just like Frank's. That is contrary to everything I have ever believed, it is contrary to the way I read the scriptures, and I gave a sermon immediately with my old stock answers, traditional views of the church, and disagreed with it. Then it came up again, and I began to actually listen and to read and study and see what the Bible itself actually said. So then I gave a sermon showing a case for Passover day being the first day of unleavened bread. There were still some scriptures I did not have total answers for, but I felt the case was strong enough to present and even to alter our conduct to the point of taking a second Passover. Now, I have studied it quite a little since. I have read quite a little since, and I've listened to some input from some of you since. However, I want you to understand that you have been accused more than once of being followers of a man and having no brains of your own. I don't believe that because I've seen you study and I've seen you come up with questions and you did not automatically accept anything I said just because I said it, thankfully. And I do believe you have minds and I do believe you have God's spirit and that God can react on your minds to understand his word. It is not a highly technical thing. It is fairly simple if you simply believe what the book actually says. Some do not. And some who say they do will say that if a particular scripture does not match their understanding, that scripture has been tampered with. It has been defiled. Editors have snuck in and changed it. Now, I already said, God's Word is so involved, and He says it's purified seven times, that you can take a little here and a little there, and you can put together a story that fits, if you use everything properly and in context, and then it can have different meanings with different subjects and be so very, very deep. Well, if there were constant things in there that have been edited and changed, and God is not capable of overseeing his word and keeping it essentially pure, then we have a serious problem. Now, there are a few cases where there has been tampering done, such as 1 John 5, 7, which is the only scripture that seems to truly prove the Trinity. But we know that was added by a Catholic monk, Erasmus, and it was in the 14th or 16th century, I forget now. 
So there are some few places that has been done, but we know of it. In this case, in, in terms of Deuteronomy 16, uh, one of those authors said that, well, Ezra changed it. Well, if Ezra, if Ezra did edit some things, I have no problem with that, do you? Ezra was commissioned of God to edit and to canonize the Old Testament. So if something there needed editing, Ezra had every authority to do it. Now, another author said, not that Ezra did it, but that some unknown scribe somewhere altered that scripture to meet his belief, and internal evidence proves it. Now, the internal evidence was really only that Deuteronomy 16, as written in the Bible today, disagrees with what the author believes. Therefore, it must have been changed because it doesn't agree with me. Now, we've been over this principle several times, have we not? When we went through the order of the Passover, this very thing came up. We in the church had been keeping the foot washing before Passover, traditionally, and I had done it that way all my life. And then I began to see that that was not the truth. The foot washing indeed should be after the bread and the wine. Now, this is the same individual who says internal evidence shows Deuteronomy 16 has been tampered with, said that since Luke was not an eyewitness, therefore he must have garbled the story and couldn't get it right. In other words, if Luke says something contrary to what I believe, then Luke must have fouled up. Who was closer to the story? A current Christian or Luke? Now, if you put the foot washing after the bread and wine, everything fits. We simply have to change our belief. But the man who used that Reasoning gave a sermon in command two years ago in which he said, we must think above Scripture. We must learn to think as God thinks. Remember that sermon? I was not in town, but I heard it via telephone. And I'll tell you what, that raised the hackles on the back of my neck like nothing does. It scared me almost speechless, because that line of thinking is so very, very dangerous. We must understand that. This book is the Word of God. Therefore, this book reflects God's mind. And he says to live by every word of this book. It is our instruction book on human conduct and human uh, doctrine. 
well, God's doctrine, but human behavior. Everything we do, religiously and personally, is contained in here. It is God's inviolate word which he has passed down for us. Now, the moment you begin to think you can think above this or apart from this, you have made your own mind an idol. That is idolatry. I'll tell you who was the first one to do that. Satan, the devil. As an anointed cherub at God's throne, somehow he began to think that he was just as good as God. And then one day he thought, I am even better than God. I can think above God. I can do a better job than God is doing because I have a better mind than you. And he convinced one-third of the angels that he was indeed smarter and more qualified than God the Father. And led a rebellion which ended in faith because he had misassessed his own capabilities. They were far short of what he thought they were. Let me cite you another example, because I feel that we must understand this. There is a scripture in Leviticus 23, which you have all read, talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. And in there, it uses the example of people at the Feast of Tabernacles taking fronds and palms and limbs and making booths in which to dwell. Now it is written perhaps a little obliquely, but this same author said there is no command in Leviticus 23 to build booths at the feast. Okay. What's the reasoning? His logic was there were a lot of Israelites, and that was somewhat a desert climate. Therefore, if all those people coming to Jerusalem had pulled enough palm fronds and other limbs to build booths, there would not have been a living branch alive in Jerusalem. This did not fit his logic. Therefore, he took that instruction in Leviticus 23 not to mean what it said and said there is no command here to build booths at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I'm not going back there and go through all that. I'm just using it as an example, and you can go back and read it yourself. You're familiar with the story. Now, if you go to Nehemiah, I think it's chapter 8. Maybe I should go back and read that. Nehemiah 8, if memory serves properly. Yes. Nehemiah 8, let's go up and begin in verse 13. And on the second day, this is of the Feast of Tabernacles, were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests and Levites, and Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. They came to Ezra to understand the words of the law. What law? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Torah, the law that God had made through Moses. And they found written in the law, 
which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month. Now these people had found in the law that God had commanded Israel to build booths. That's the way they interpreted Leviticus 23. And that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth to the mount, and fetch olive branches, and pine branches, and myrtle branches, and palm branches, and branches of thick trees, to make booths as it is written. So the people went forth, and brought them, and made themselves booths, every one upon the roof of his house, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the street of the water gate, and the street of the gate of Ephraim, and all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths, and sat under the booths, for since the days of Joshua the son of Nun, for that day had not the children of Israel done so, and there was very great gladness. So, if Luke doesn't agree with us, we throw out his testimony. If Nehemiah does not agree with us, we throw out his testimony. The same author in his paper about the first day of unleavened bread being Passover or not, then went to Luke to disprove what Matthew said in Matthew 26, 17, about the Passover being killed on the first day of unleavened bread. We've already discredited Luke in one doctrine. Then we use Luke to discredit Matthew, who was an eyewitness, on another doctrine. Can we pick and choose which authors of the Bible we will listen to? And if we find one in Leviticus, uh, not Leviticus, Deuteronomy 16, that does not agree with us, then we're going to say that either Moses made a mistake, and we doesn't do that, so we say someone somewhere must have edited this because it doesn't fit what I think I see in other scriptures. That is very, very illogical thinking. Now, we're going to examine all these scriptures. In that same paper, I was accused of not going back to the first place that this was mentioned, and that author went back to Exodus 12. The author obviously had not heard my sermon because I started in Exodus 12. And the author even admitted had not listened to any of my sermons since Atonement, wherein I said that the symbolism very clearly seems to indicate that atonement is a symbol of the marriage of the land to the bride. So, I'm not going to throw rocks for someone reacting according to what they've always believed, okay? I did the same thing when I first heard the subject about whether Passover is the first day of unleavened bread or not. Then I had to eat crow feathers and all. So I have set an example that you could follow whether you like crow or not. This, this crow is an unclean bird, too. It's not easy to swallow. Feathers and all. But, I will say this. 
I did tell people, be patient, we'll work through this, we'll study it some more, we'll find out whether it's right or wrong. Some were not willing to wait and to be patient and let us sort it all out, and they left us right away. Or they waited a little while and left anyway. Now, I am going to go into the subject again. I feel that I can answer all the objections and questions a lot better now. And not one paper that I received went into all the scriptures. It took those which the authors liked and expounded them and took them out of context in most cases and did not consider the whole story. We're going to look at all of them, Old Testament and New Testament. And I believe that I now have answers for areas that I did not have answers for then, even though the overall picture seemed fairly clear. And there is additional new information that I did not cover at all back then that changes the picture somewhat even again, and which will be fairly startling, I do believe. But it makes the whole thing fit together even better and answers a lot of questions that still remain that I did not fully have an answer for. Now, some of the objections that came up were, there's no way you can call Passover a feast. No way, someone wrote. There's no way Passover is a feast. I wrote back and said, why don't you read Exodus 12, I believe it's 14, which says that that day is a feast. Someone else objected that Passover is not a holy convocation. They only had one scripture they liked about the Passover in terms of the timing of the Days of Unleavened Bread and Passover, and that's Leviticus 23 paired with Numbers 28. And the only verse that any of those people seem to read is verse 6 of Leviticus 23, which seems to indicate that the days of unleavened bread begin on the 15th. They have not read verses 1 through 5 carefully, because verse 4 says, in so many words, that Passover is a feast. And it is a holy convocation. We'll get to that. Now, I heard, along about the time we were beginning studying this, that there was a group somewhere under someone's leadership who were keeping both the Passover and the night to be much observed on the same night. And my reaction to that was, that is patently ridiculous. Didn't I know, and don't we know, that Passover is the 14th, and the night to be much observed is the 15th, and you couldn't have both those events the same night? Give me a break. I was setting myself up for another crow dinner. Now, by that, you may suspect that I believe Passover and the night to be much observed are the same night. And I think that I have come to see that very clearly in Scripture. 
Now, I gave a Bible study on that to get input from people here last week before I preached it in a sermon. And those here could see very clearly that it was so. There were a couple of questions. Maybe I didn't explain it quite clearly enough afterward, but those were quickly cleared up uh, when they understood exactly what I was saying. Now, I believed a lot of things for about 50 years in the Church of God. And I used this to begin that first sermon, and I want to use this example again. That we have understandings or traditions in the church that we have accepted, and when they were explained to us from Scripture, we took a little path through those verses, only looking at certain points that we felt were key. And in so doing, we were able to... Now, let's understand how Herbert Armstrong came to understand, as he did, a lot of things. He did not discover the Sabbath himself. Someone told his wife about it, and she studied her Bible, and then she said, Herbert, you need to look at this. And he said, that is preposterous. So he began a, was indeed, the true Sabbath. And after all his study, he proved that Saturday was the true Sabbath that has been there ever since creation. Never been changed by God. It was changed by the Catholic Church. And then all the Protestants, of course, accepted it as well. But according to the Scripture, many, many ministers that I've talked to over the years, out in Methodist, Baptist, Church of Christ, whatever they happen to be, would sit down with me and quietly admit, because they have read some Scripture, they would admit that Saturday is the seventh day, Sabbath, and that the Bible does say that. But the next thing out of their mouths followed a question that I customarily asked. That question was, why then don't you keep Saturday? And their answer was always, without fail, the same response. No one would come to my services. Now, is that a legitimate reason for keeping Sunday? You know, you and I know it's not. But Herbert Armstrong proved that. Then as he studied, he began to prove other things and understand other things. It took him, actually, many, many years to understand some things. He was teaching and preaching that the Trinity was true in the 30s. It took him a long time to understand that that was not the case, that there's the Father and the Son and that the Holy Spirit is their power. He studied the holy days and began to understand that they should be kept. He didn't understand what they meant for New Testament Christians for a long time. And he and Almighty kept the peace about seven years by themselves. Then he began to understand the order of the resurrections. Paul says there is an order of resurrections, more than one resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. 
and began then to attach New Testament Christian symbolism to the Old Testament holy days. I say Old Testament because that's where they originated, but every one of them is mentioned in the New Testament, and Paul and the Apostles were keeping them all in the New Testament church. So the example there by Christ and by the disciples after Christ nailed everything that he nailed at the stake was nailed, was still to keep all the holy days. So we do that today. But now let's understand there was a controversy about Pentecost, and I personally have a pile of papers probably ten inches deep in my office of different papers that have been written on how you count Pentecost. This was a thing that raged in the church for years and years, and which Herbert Armstrong went back and forth on many times. He talked to Jewish scholars and grammarians around the world, in New York, in L.A., in Jerusalem, trying to figure out how to count Leviticus 23. Let's go back there just for a moment. Leviticus 23, verse 15. And you shall count for you from the morrow after the Sabbath. Now this is speaking of the weekly Sabbath, and that can be true. You shall count for you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheep of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even to the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall you number fifty days, and you shall offer a new meat offering to the eternal. Those two verses were the source of all those papers and all the arguments and all of Mr. Armstrong's frustration. Now, we kept the Monday Pentecost for decades in the Church of God, because Mr. Armstrong counted it exclusively. In other words, he did not include Sunday in the count. And he argued back and forth over inclusive or exclusive counting. Now, those are fancy words which only mean, do you start counting the day after the Sabbath? Or do you count from the day after the day after the Sabbath? That's all the argument was about. We, as a church, kept Pentecost on the wrong day for a lot of years. Decades. I did it wrong. He finally saw that the wave chief was offered on Sunday. And the Pentecost, therefore, ought to be Sunday. Now, there are those who think you must go to Joshua 5 to prove that it is the weekly Sabbath during the Days of Unleavened Bread from which the wave chief is counted. There is a much, much simpler way of proving that, and even as we studied Passover, I had the question come up a time or two, well, should we count... Pentecost from the first day of unleavened bread, or should it be from the weekly Sabbath during? I will give you one example which should suffice to answer that question. Jesus Christ was killed when? On a Wednesday afternoon. That Wednesday was a high day. 
And we always thought Thursday was the high day, but it was Wednesday, and I'll prove that. Count 72 hours, three days and three nights, and he was resurrected then on Saturday afternoon late. 72 hours in the grave as Jonah was in the fish, three days and three nights. When he was resurrected, the end of the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, he disappeared. And the women came to the tomb early on Sunday morning before it was light, while it was yet dark and he was already gone. He did not rise at sunset or sunrise on Sunday morning as Protestants would have you believe. They came while it was dark and he was already gone. Not even a hint of light in the sky. Now, a little later he appeared to them and they wanted to touch him and see, is that really you? And he said, don't touch me, I have not yet ascended to my father to be accepted. Okay? Later that day, he had gone to his father in heaven, been accepted, and come back, and then he could be touched. So, he was accepted as the wave chief on that Sunday following the weekly Sabbath. In this case, that would have been the fourth day of unleavened bread. Wednesday was the first day of unleavened bread, Thursday was the second, Friday, well wait a minute, yeah, Wednesday would have been the first, Thursday the second, Friday the third, uh, Saturday the fourth, Sunday would have been the fifth. So he was accepted on the fifth day of unleavened bread. Therefore, you cannot count, or start to count for Pentecost on the first day of unleavened bread, at all. We couldn't when Christ was crucified. If that had been the case, would have, the, he would have had to have been crucified Saturday night in order to have the next day be the first holy day from which you counted Pentecost. Okay? So in this case, he died at the beginning of unleavened bread and was resurrected and accepted on the fifth day of unleavened bread. So that shows that it was the weekly Sabbath that you count from, not the first day of unleavened bread. In that particular year, it was counted from the fifth day. I think that should make that clear, and you don't need Joshua 5 to prove it. Now, Joshua 5 might yet indeed prove it, but you don't really need it, and this one is even clearer. Very simple to do the math here. So, if he was waved on a Sunday, then Pentecost has to be on a Sunday. Okay? That means that you start counting with the Sunday after the weekly Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread. That clears up Leviticus 23, 15, and 16 very nicely. You don't wait until Sunday and count beginning away from Sunday, you count Sunday. The way we came up with Monday, which is as well, Sunday's the day after, and you count from it, therefore you start counting on Monday. Now, that's not the way you count. It's not the way God counts. When we say, I'll meet you a week from today, we'll meet at the same time 
today, next week. It's 10 o'clock Sunday morning, then we'll meet 10 o'clock Sunday morning. We all understand that. Makes sense. You count the day that you're in. When you count to seven, you're there. You start counting on Sunday, and you count 50, uh, or seven complete Sabbaths. See, he says count by Sabbaths. Seven complete Sabbaths. Well, if you count seven complete Sabbaths, and it's one day more, that makes it Sunday. I didn't mean to go into Pentecost necessarily in this sermon, but we need to understand that you count the day, not the next day. And we'll get to that when we get to Passover here and later too, probably not today. But how did we have doctrine set in the church? From Mr. Armstrong's study of Scripture. He was a beginning studier. And it took him sometimes years and even decades to come up with truths, and there are some truths he never, ever uncovered. He saw flaws and problems in the Jewish calendar, but he never understood that the whole thing was flawed because they didn't follow what God had put in the heavens. And therefore, we had to later, after he was even dead, most of us, come to understand that the Jewish calendar isn't worth what it's written on. Because the, God, the, the calendar that God put in the heavens is the calendar he expects us to follow without us artificially postponing or changing things to fit our thinking. God put it up there. It works every month, every year. It works the same way every month, every year. How can I alter that? How can I add to it? Can't. So some are waking up to the fact that the Jews aren't keeping the holy days properly. Herbert Armstrong never understood that part of it. He understood they counted Pentecost wrong. How did we come up with this idea that there are eight days in the spring holy days? That you have a Passover and then you have, uh, starting on the 15th, seven more days of unleavened bread. I think the way that happened is that Herbert Armstrong began reading Exodus 12 because it was interested in the holy days. And he saw some things in there that seemed to indicate to him that those could be separated. The Jews didn't do it. But he seemed to see that in Scripture. So he put the story together the best he understood it, and then when he explained it to others, he danced through Exodus 12 and 13 and Leviticus 23 according to the way he understood it. He did not realize he was leaving out some very key elements. Red Coulter today does not realize that Herbert Armstrong left out some key elements. Frank Nelpy certainly doesn't understand that he is leaving out some key elements, even as I did not understand all those years that I was leaving out some key elements. I apologize to you, I'm sorry, but I had it wrong. Now let's consider everything and the whole story. We're to live by every word of God, not just those which seemed to fit until you put the rest with them. 
this is a very long introduction, but this is going to take two or three weeks. And I think we need to leave no stone uncovered, because this is a key doctrine. It is a very important doctrine, and it can very easily become a salvational doctrine. So even though some of you may yet disagree with it, I plead with you, listen carefully, because there might be something here you can learn. The sermonette said, we must be teachable, we must be humble. Now I'm going to apply that principle here as well. Let's open our minds and see what God says. Not what Herbert Armstrong said, not what Beryl Henson used to say, or what Frank or Fred or somebody else might say today based on what they thought they understood. What does God say? That is all that matters. Daryl can't resurrect you. Herbert Armstrong can't resurrect you. And neither can Fred or Frank or anybody else. And I'm not here trying to return railing for railing. All I'm doing is trying to explain that those men were seeing things the way they understood them, and so was I. But now let's just consider what God says. Let's put Daryl and Fred and Frank and Herbert all to rest, and let's see what God says. Is that fair? I, I think that's fair. Now, I understand that all these things, to one degree or another, are subject to interpretation. I was someone even told me, I'm going to follow the Bible, you do what you want. Well, what do I preach from every week? Is it the Reader's Digest or the Gentleman's Quarterly or the Wall Street Journal? No, I think I pretty much read out of this every week, don't I? Except weeks when Nelson reads out of it. So to say, I'll, I'll follow the Bible, you do what you wish, I think is an unfair assessment. We're talking about interpretation here. Both, the one who told me he would follow the Bible, and I, are reading the same book. We're seeing it differently. So there is always the possibility of disagreement if people are looking at scriptures differently. What I want to make sure we do is look at all the scriptures and see what they say, not just those that we might think fit our thinking. Because not one paper, not one, not one email that I received considered them all. They considered only the ones that they seemed to like. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it was. So in this series, let's consider them all. We consider them all, and you can do as you please. But I, before God, feel it is very important that we get this very critical issue right. Now, I was accused obliquely, not going back to where it began, and that reference obviously was to Exodus 12. Now, I propose that we go back further than that. Let's go to 1 Peter 2, verse 19. 
1 Peter 2. And here, it may seem like we're going way beyond Exodus 12. We're actually going before Exodus 12. 1 Peter 2, verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Now what this tells us is that before the world was even created, the concept of Jesus Christ coming as a lamb without spot, as the firstborn of many brethren, as the first Son of God, all of this was contemplated, figured out, and decided before the creation even occurred. He who, was, who became the Father and he who became the Son, when he was born here on the earth, he was the Melchizedek Christ was beforehand, and God was God Almighty, Jehovah, in charge. People are pointing. What? That's where I'm reading. Did I say two? Well, you should understand. You should know me well enough. Now, the Scriptures will show us what is important and which days are marked. And it will show also what events occurred on those days, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. What is more important in terms of unleavened bread? Jesus Christ dying that my sins be forgiven, or me working on a particular sin I might have on the fourth day of unleavened bread? or the fifth day of unleavened bread, or the sixth day, or whichever day you want to pick. Which is more important? That which Christ did supersedes any and everything I as an individual might have ever thought of doing, have ever done, or ever will do. He is the key to the whole thing. The key issue now, we can go to Genesis 4, and we see that there was a delineation made there of what was a proper sacrifice and what was not. Now, no instruction had been given by Genesis 4 on giving any kind of sacrifices as far as we know. Now, God must have talked to Adam and Eve. They must have taught Cain and Abel certain things which at this point have not been mentioned in Scripture. But these two men, Cain and Abel, understood that it was proper to make an offering before God, and a sacrifice, for that matter, before God, had to have been from God teaching Adam and Eve, and perhaps even these two boys. Now, you remember the story. Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a pillar of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering to the eternal. And Abel also 
brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect to Abel and to his offering. Now, not only did Abel understand he needed to bring a lamb, and the lamb needed to be a firstborn of the flock, he even understood the fat part of the sacrifice, which isn't really explained until Leviticus, is it? And Numbers. The law of the offerings, Leviticus 1 through 7. So he understood this way back then. Now, let's understand again the key element of the Passover. It had to be a lamb. It had to be a first fruit. And its blood had to be sacrificed and its fat had to be offered. Cain knew that as well. He had been taught that. But he said, wait just a minute. Why is your land better than my carrots? Or whatever he was raised. So he brought his bunch of carrots. And God said, no. See, God understood the symbolism. He understood the key elements of a sacrifice given to God. It had to be the first link. It had to be of the lamb. Later, it showed could be goat or lamb, but the symbolism is essentially of a lamb quiet to the slaughter. So the elements and the key ingredients of the Passover, which would not come until Exodus 12, were already being laid. Let's go to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. You remember the story of Abraham and Isaac. Now, in this story, the symbolism is that Abraham is in the place of the father, and Isaac is in the place of the son. Now, this son to Abraham was all important to his life. Remember the story before this, and how Abraham and Sarah wished to have children and could not. Sarah was barren, could not produce. And they waited, and they tried, and they waited, and they tried. And she simply could not become pregnant. Now God appeared and said, you will have a son. Now she chuckled and laughed. He did as well. She perhaps with a different attitude than him, I'm not sure. He may have laughed and said, aha. <laughs> And she may have laughed and said, no way. I don't know exactly how the laughs went. But God upgraded her for her attitude in any case. But this is something they had desired. God said it's going to happen. And then he made them wait years and years before it actually happened. That son to Abraham had become very precious. Now, he loved Sarah. He consorted with Hagar because Sarah suggested it, thinking that she could get credit for Hagar's children, since she was the wife and Hagar only the concubine. But that didn't work out too well because she became jealous. And Hagar produced some, in that sense, illegitimate wild people who are a pain in the behind and who remain that today to Israelites. 
And that was not what Abraham was after. He wanted a wife of Sarah. And he, not a wife of Sarah. He wanted a child of Sarah and he wanted to be a son. So, that's the way the story worked out. Then, Isaac grew up, grew to at least teenage, maybe even his early 20s. And God said, Abraham, saddle your ass, take your son, and crucify him as a sacrifice to me. This was a test of Abraham. It was also a test of the symbolism of Scripture. Because Abraham represented in this story God the Father, and Isaac represented Jesus Christ. And before God the Father offered his son at his right side, he wanted this enacted on the earth by human beings. And he let Abraham go as far as actually raising the knife. And just before he started to plunge into Isaac's heart, God stopped him and said, Now I know you will put me first no matter what. Jesus Christ was to come to the earth generations later and fulfill the same story. Jeanette, would you mind turning on the lights here? It must be overcast outside. I like to be able to know when people are sleeping and when they're not. Good morning. For those of you who are not here, we have skylights on the top of the building. When the sun shines, it gets bright as day in here, but it's overcast, obviously, and it was getting quite dark, really. Maybe we'll get some rain. Anyway, the symbol goes back. All right. Let's get to my main point here. What are the key elements? The key elements are the Father has to perform, the Son has to perform, and be willing to be sacrificed. This is a picture symbolizing the Passover that was to come. Those were the key elements in their planning stages. They were the key elements in sorting out Cain and Abel's sacrifices. They were the key elements in Abraham and Isaac's stage play, if you will, or symbolism of what was to come. Now, is there any thought or clue that the key elements would be anything else when it came to Exodus 12 with all Israel, or even later when Christ himself came to the earth? These are the most important things to consider. Now, let's go to Exodus 12 with that background. Understanding what are the key elements. Well, let's don't quite go to Exodus 12 yet. Let's kind of thumb back just a little bit and begin to see what God had in mind. And I think that this is important background to understand when we start considering when God officially considered them leaving Egypt. That is a key element in understanding the night to be much observed. Now, God had planned for a long time to spring them out of Egypt, right? 
He had sent Moses into training in the land of Midian. He kept him there forty years to be prepared before he could bring them out. And when he did bring him back, he didn't just suddenly cause Pharaoh and all Egyptians to lay down and tell the people, go away. You can leave. It's okay. No problem. We don't mind. No, that's not the way the thing works. God had in mind to truly work over the Egyptians, didn't he? And he sent all kinds of plagues leading up to Exodus 12. You can start back in chapter 8 of Exodus. And here, Moses had thrown his rod down and it turned into a snake. And the magicians of Egypt said, oh, that's no big deal. They threw their rods down and they became snakes also. So demons and Satan can do miracles, can't they? So miracles aren't always the test if they ever are. Moses' snake ate, or snake ate their snakes. Now God decided to use the Egyptians' gods who had become Israel's gods as plagues against both to wake them up. The first plague he sent was in chapter 7, verse 17 and 18 in which the river Nile became blood. Well, the Egyptians worshipped the river. The river Nile was their chief idol. And that's the first one God hit. Turn the water into blood. That which they bathed in, that which they drank, that which they watered their crops with, that which was the river of life for Egypt was turned into blood. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Chapter 8, verse 3, God used another of the Egyptian gods. It was one of the gods that sometimes popped out of the river. Frogs. This was a god of the Israelites as well. And God caused frogs to be in their living rooms, in their kitchens, in their stew pots, in their bathrooms, and in their beds. There were frogs everywhere. They had quite their fill of that God. And this came on the Israelites as well. Then in chapter 8, verse 16, the third plague was a plague of lice. They also worshipped lice. I don't know whether any of you have ever been lousy or not, but I've seen people with head lice. And they're very hard to get rid of. People shave their heads and they put funny-looking ointments on top and... Lice are hard to get rid of, and they get down in the hair, and, and they are extremely uncomfortable. Well, the Egyptians and the Israelites were a lousy bunch of people. Lice everywhere. No way to get away from them. Then God sent another of their gods, flies. Flies everywhere. One or two or three flies buzzing about your head can be very irritating, right? And then when you go in some place where they're raising chickens or animals of some kind, there's a lot of manure around, then there's just flies, flies everywhere. Because flies are attracted to that. Well, they had flies in swarms so thick that it almost drove them crazy. Then God made a difference. Everything came 
after the third plague, including the flies, it was the fourth plague, on just the Egyptians, and God began to separate his people out. There should be some understanding there for us. God separates his people from the world around. Then he sent a new rain, number 5 in chapter 9, verse 4, which was something that afflicted the cattle, says all the cattle were killed. All is not obviously quite what it meant. It meant the majority, because later on uh, they had other things that affected what cattle were left and what animals were left. <coughs> and then even when they chased Israel to the Red Sea, they had some horses. <coughs> so all is speaking of the majority here. Then in verse 9, chapter 6, they had boils all over them. I think I had a boil once when I was a child, on just one boil. And I'll tell you, that is painful. I cannot imagine boils all over the body, like Job had and like these Egyptians had. No place to sit, no way to stand, boils all over them. Everything stops. Then he said, Hail, verse 18. Hail such as had never been seen before, and it beat the trees, beat the crops, beat everything to the ground. Didn't leave much. Then Pharaoh said, I've sinned this time. Man, oh man, did I ever do something wrong. Then in chapter 10 and verse 12, he sent locusts. And everything that the hail hadn't killed, the locusts ate. This place was beginning to look like the Sahara Desert at its worst. Nothing left. And even some of Pharaoh's own people said, that my eye doesn't fall on it right now, don't you realize that, is, that Egypt is destroyed? Pharaoh, don't you realize our empire, our country is done? It's destroyed. And then for the ninth one, he sent... Where is it here? Uh, darkness. Chapter 10, verse 21. Darkness, which was so dark, it could even be felt. You know, you're, after your eyes adjust to darkness, you can see just a little bit under most conditions. But this became so dark that it absolutely disoriented them. They couldn't even get out of their beds. It was so dark. And they, they, it was so dark you could feel it. Now, that would frighten some people into total insanity. But still, his heart was hardened. Now, we're building up to something here. Because God is showing by his mighty, powerful hand that he can destroy any empire on earth. And he's laying the groundwork for chapter 12. Now, the real action starts in chapter 12. And when does it start, and how is it played out? Now, this is very important background to understand when we come to consider when God officially considered them leaving Egypt. The point being that God is showing by his mighty, powerful hand that he can destroy Egypt and that he can keep his word and get Israel out of Egypt. That he can do it. Okay? 
And he already had predetermined when he would do it and how he would do it. And he tells Moses that when I have killed all the firstborn of Egypt, then you will go. That is key to understand. Now, how much time do I have? I think we have time to get into Exodus 12 now. And let's look at what this chapter actually, literally says. I don't know that we need to begin right at the beginning here. We're all pretty familiar with it, but maybe we should, lest I be accused of not going to the beginning. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be to you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. There's a good calendar verse for you. The year begins in the spring, when they left Egypt. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. Now, this, does this begin like to sound like 1 Peter 1, verse 19, and Genesis 4, and Genesis 22. What is the first key element here? Select a lamb. This is going to be very important. Old Testament and New Testament. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls, Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. Now, it had to be a sheep or a goat, but it had to be a firstling lamb. It had to be able to represent, ultimately, Jesus Christ. And what would happen to this lamb would be very key. I think that everyone understands that whether they agree so far with what we are understanding about the first day of unleavened bread and the night we much observed or not. That the Lamb is key and that Christ is represented by the Lamb. But what day did it all happen on? That becomes important. And you shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening, as my margin says, between the two evenings, or to get even more technical in the Hebrew, it's ben ha Arbayim, which means between sunset and dark, was when it was to be killed. Now, it did not have to be eaten then, it had to be roasted, and they had to have it all eaten by morning. We'll see a little later on that it had to be killed at the beginning of the 14th. I was even accused in all of this Passover thing of having an agenda to change us to the 15th Passover. Give me a break here. By the time we're done, we're going to see that all that was important, all that could have been important, happened on the 14th, beginning at sundown on the beginning of the 14th. And continuing from there, I have absolutely no inclination, no idea, and no agenda of turning us to the 15th Passover. 
whatsoever. And maybe that's another big crow I'll have to eat someday, but at this moment, I can see no justification whatsoever in Scripture for a 15th Passover. And I think that will become abundantly clear before we're done here. And I do understand the arguments of the 15ers. And they're wrong. All right, you keep it until the 14th. Word here for until is ad. It means until or the limit of time itself in the Hebrew. That is, it's limited by until. You keep it until the 14th, not the end of the 14th. And then you kill it at sundown. Sundown is ba'erev. Sundown to dark is ben ha'arbayim. Both are at the beginning of the day. You could actually use either one here interchangeably and not have a problem, because if you said kill it at Ba'erev, that would mean killing it sundown on the 14th. Well, there is only one sundown of the 14th that counts for the 14th. That's the beginning. Because God counts a day from sundown to sundown. So sundown at the end of the 14th becomes what? the 15th. And you would be killing it after sundown at the beginning of the 15th. He says clearly that it's the 14th. So you have to do it at the end of the 13th, at sundown, beginning of the 14th, in order to comply with the way God counts days. So you keep it until the 14th, until it in the evening at the beginning of the 14th. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. Now this becomes very important because if they didn't do this, as we'll see, someone in that house would die. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Now, they were to have unleavened bread at the beginning of the 14th with the Passover lamb. Okay? Let's establish that now. Now, that does not in itself and by itself prove that the first day of unleavened bread begins with the Passover at the beginning of the 14th. But it's a clue. And I'll tell you this. All that Fred Coulter wrote about the Passover in his book and showing that, that is, there is an eight-day entirety of festivals there, despite all the scriptures that only say you have seven days of unleavened bread, since he wrote the book, is now keeping eight days of unleavened bread. From the Passover on, he keeps unleavened bread, and he does it for eight days. Now, I believe the man is on to something. He doesn't have full understanding yet, but he's on to something. He realizes that Passover day, unleavened bread, should not be eaten. And he winds up keeping eight days. Well, I think he's on the right track. I just don't believe he's gone quite far enough yet. Because there are only seven days of unleavened bread, and no scripture says there are eight. So, the beginning of the 14th, there was to be unleavened bread. And it was to be roasted 
eat not of it raw nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with his pertinence thereof. Couldn't be boiled, it had to be roasted, and the word there specifically is roast. There's another word for cook in Deuteronomy 16, which can include roasting. It's a general term, and we'll get to that later on. And you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remains of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. So they were to eat that Passover lamb, all of it, that night. And if for some reason they couldn't eat it all, it had to be burned with fire the next morning. Keep that in mind when we get to Deuteronomy 16, probably next week. Because it's a key element in Deuteronomy 16 as well. And Deuteronomy 16, once you understand Exodus 12 and 13, does not need to be altered. Because Deuteronomy 16 will fit Exodus 12 and 13, and therefore doesn't need altering. But we'll get to that. Now here is something very important for us to consider in verse 11. And thus shall you eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now God had already uh, established what was going to happen that night. Now think for a moment. You're sitting in your chair, and you're explaining to your wife what your plan for the next few days is, and you're talking it over, and you say, I'm going to leave on a trip tomorrow night. And she says, well, okay. Now, as you explain this to her, you're standing there with your suitcase packed, your briefcase in your hand, your walking stick out in front of you, and you have your glasses on, and you pick up your car keys, and you're telling your wife, I'm leaving on a trip tomorrow night. And she'll say, well, why then don't you have your pajamas on and prepare to get a night's sleep so that you can be prepared to leave tomorrow night. Make sense? Why? When they were just starting to roast the Passover, preparing to eat it that night, did God have them with their robes girded up and tied to the belt around their waist so that they could walk easily? They had their walking stick in their hand and their sandals on their feet like they were ready to go somewhere now. Why would that be necessary if you're going to be leaving tomorrow night? And eat it in haste. Eat fast. Something big is going to happen when? Tomorrow night? No, tonight. You're ready to go now and in haste. Important key element here. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night. Which night? Passover night. We've all understood that, haven't we? Always. 
he was going to go through, while they were in the house eating Passover with the blood over the doorposts. I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Why firstborn? Why not second or thirdborn? God was going to give his son, and this night symbolized it, and there, hey, there's that rain. And therefore, God was also going to kill the firstborn of the Egyptians. That which God would do himself, he made them do. Just as in symbolism, he made Cain and Abel do, and Abraham and Isaac do. Those are key elements of all this. So it had to be the firstborn of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. So the blood was a key element here, okay? Now, let's go to verse 14, because now we're going to begin to make some sense. I think we've been making sense all along, but I mean in terms of when what was done and what is important. Chapter 12, verse 14. There are some things mentioned in this verse which the church absolutely ignored for decades. Since I first became associated with the church now over 50 years ago, we were ignoring verse 14. And this day, which day? Which one is he talking about? He's talking about the Passover, the 14th. There's not been a change in subject here whatsoever. Do you see a change in subject? Do you know any of the rules of grammar? If you introduce a new subject, you have to say so. Otherwise, the antecedent is that which has come before. That which you're talking about now is what you were talking about in the previous sentences that you uttered. This day, the 14th, no change to the 15th here whatsoever. This day shall be to you for a memorial. The 14th is a memorial day. And it doesn't say this Passover service or this evening, this day shall be for a memorial. That is critical to understand. We observed about one hour on the 14th and then went our way to do that which we wished to do. We might have gone out to eat after Passover services. We might have gone to work the next day. We might have eaten donuts all day. We might have had pizza just before sunset on the 14th to be sure we got plenty of leavening in our stomach before we began the Days of Unleavened Bread. He doesn't say that the Passover service was something to be remembered. He said, this day shall be a memorial. What do you do on a day that is a memorial? 
you keep the whole day. We don't keep the first hour of the 4th of July and then ignore the rest. It is a holiday all day because that day is a memorial day. And we keep Memorial Day the same way because it's the memorial all day of veterans of past wars. So first of all, the 14th Passover day is a memorial. Now you can make a little list here of things that the first day of Passover is. The first is it's a memorial. Not just the night before, but the whole day. And you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Not only is the 14th day a memorial, it is also a feast of God. Wow! We never considered that. Did we ever proclaim the 14th Passover day a memorial and a feast? No, we did not. We proclaimed an hour for Passover service, and the rest of the day you can do whatever you wanted to while Christ was being beaten, suffering, and dying. Now, what is important in 1 Peter 1, Genesis 4, Genesis 22, Exodus 12, and John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, and 18? Christ's sacrifice. That is what is to be memorialized. That makes that day a very important day. <coughs> so it is a memorial and it is a feast. Throughout your generations, you shall keep it a feast. That's the second time it calls it a feast. By an ordinance forever. Alright, it, it is a day, not just an hour. It is a memorial, it is a feast, and it is a, an ordinance. A written law that you are to keep forever. That makes four things very important about that 24-hour period, doesn't it? Now, let's go to Leviticus 23. Keep your finger here. We'll be right back. Let's go to Leviticus 23. Now, I was told, as I said earlier, that there is absolutely no way, no how, you can call the Passover a feast. And yet, verse 14 calls it a feast. Now, someone else told me just as adamantly, there's no place that calls the Passover a holy convocation. All right, let's read Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 1. And the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, I don't see any problem so far, is that it? Can you interpret that okay? Is there any problem here in the Hebrew? I'm being a little sarcastic. I think it's pretty plain, isn't it? God spoke to Moses, saying, So far, so good. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, Concerning the feasts, plural, of the Lord, not just one feast, but the feasts of the Lord, plural, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts, plural. He's going to talk about more than one feast here. 
And these feasts that he is about to tell us about are holy convocations. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, and holy convocation, you shall do no work therein, it is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. So he says, I'm going to tell you about my feasts, which are holy convocations. Then he names the weekly Sabbath, which is a holy convocation. Now, he's not done. Verse 4. These are the feasts of the Lord. What he is about to name next are additional feasts that is in addition to the weekly Sabbath. He said, I'm going to show you my feasts, which are holy convocations. He mentions the Sabbath. Then he says, all right, now we're going to continue the list of feasts that are holy convocations. Which you shall proclaim in their seasons, or at their appointed times in the proper seasons. Jews don't do that. That's another calendar topic. We'll get to that at another time. Let's not miss, though, what verse 4 says. These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, commanded assemblies, which you shall proclaim in their season. Now, what is the first feast? What is the first holy convocation that he lists? Verse 5. In the fourteenth day of the first month, at even, is the Lord's Passover. Why didn't we consider that a feast and a holy convocation? It says in Exodus 12, 14, it is a feast. It says it is a memorial. It is a day to be kept by ordinance forever. We go to Leviticus 23, and God says, I'm going to make a list of my feasts, which are holy convocations. The first one he mentions is the weekly Sabbath. Then he repeats himself and says, let's make no mistake here, the list that I am about to give you includes my feasts and my holy convocations. And the first one on the list is Passover. Passover, by God's word in Leviticus 23, is both a feast and a holy convocation. Now, people will turn and say, Leviticus 23, 6 says, On the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread of the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. And they do not read the first five verses. We must consider the first five verses. We will also consider the sixth verse. I said we would be fair and consider them all. I'm not going to get to the sixth verse right now. Because what I wanted to establish in Leviticus 23 is that the most hallowed verse of those who would oppose the first day of unleavened bread being Passover day, use this with Numbers 28, which says essentially the same thing as verse 6. This is the main one they go to. But they're jerking it out of the context and not considering verses 1 through 5. And one of them who is adamant about it said there is no way, no place, the Passover is called a holy convocation. Well, I just done found one in her favorite chapter, 
Okay? So far, are we marking Passover Day, the 14th, as important? Now, I realize verse 6 says that there are other holy convocations, other feasts. Now, how do we put the whole story together? We'll do it. But I don't want to go there quite yet. All right, let's go back to Exodus 12. I'm out of time. I think that's where we should stop then, uh, having established a very, very important benchmark here. One that we had ignored over the years. We had ignored this day, not just that night previous, but the day itself was to be a memorial, it was to be a feast, it was to be uh, a holy convocation, and it was to be done by an ordinance forever. That marks the 14th as a very, very important day. It also echoes what we've already talked about in other scriptures, about the 14th being the day that the firstborn Son of God died. What more important event is there in history than the day that Jesus Christ died for our sins? That has to be a very important day. People who are just beginning to study this subject say to me, well, how could the Passover be a feast? How could it be a holy convocation? How could it be that important? And my answer to that is, how could it not be a holy convocation and a feast and a memorial? Because the most important thing in the history of man occurred on that day. Now, we can trot out our arguments about the 15th, but the 14th, I'm sorry, it's a marked day. It's an important day. And that is a good time to stop, and we'll pick it up there and continue next week, God willing.